Hi, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another one of my YouTube videos and Podbean podcasts on the uh, blog Gaudium at Spez 22, which you can find at Gaudium at Spez 22.com. I'm Dr. Larry Chapp, former professor of theology at DeSales University, and now just a sort of farmer, writer, gentleman, whatever you want to call me. But I'm very thrilled today to have as, as a guest somebody that probably 90% to 99% of my viewers already know about, and that is Edward Penton, uh, who is a great, fantastic journalist, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm thrilled that he, that he agreed to come on the show. And I'm just going to read this uh, very brief description of, of Ed Penton for, for those who don't know who he is. Uh, Edward began his career in Rome as a, and you can correct me too if any of this online stuff is not up to date, Edward. Uh, he sure, began sure. his career in Rome as a producer and presenter at Vatican Radio before moving on to report for a number of publications, including Newsweek, The Sunday Times, Foreign Affairs, Newsmax, and the National Catholic Register. Articles have covered a broad mix of issues relating to religion, politics, and society. His media appearances have included Al Jazeera, Sky News of the UK, CNN, Fox News, ITV, BBC Radio 4, The World Tonight, and the BBC World Service. He's also been a contributing editor to the Holy Land Review, a Franciscan quarterly specializing in the church in the Middle East. In 2015, he wrote the highly acclaimed The Rigging of a Vatican Synod, an investigation into alleged manipulation at the extraordinary synod of the family. I've read that. I agree with that. That is a it should be highly acclaimed as a great book. <clears throat> but beyond reporting, he's worked as a researcher and consultant to Lord Alton of Liverpool, one of the world's foremost pro-life campaigners, and as a communications consultant to the Dignitatis Humanae Institute, a pro-life think tank based in Rome. Uh, that's just uh, some of his uh, some of his accolades. We could go on and on. Is there anything you want to add to that description, uh, Ed, before before we launch into our conversation? Uh, no, no, no. It's fine, Larry. Thank you. I, I no. have written this other book, of course, The Next Pope with with a oh, team of which yes, um, that's actually listed in there later. And I forget. So go yeah, ahead. Mention that's... that book. Mention that book so people can run out and order it now. Okay. No, it's called The Next Pope, uh, The Leading Cardinal Candidates, and it, it looks into the 19... Uh, 19 leading cardinal candidates who who are popular. you know i i have not read that book uh but i have had conversations with george weigel uh and mm -hmm. so i'm already off topic but now that you bring that up uh let's 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 talk about this very very briefly i've had conversations with george weigel about the next the next conclave because he has strong yeah. opinions about that as well um and he is of the opinion, I think, that the votes are just not there for a Pope Francis II uh, to sort of emerge. Do, do you share that view or or do you think it's just wide open? Yes, I think that is the general consensus. And that also comes from the late Cardinal George Pell, who who was before he died, he was sort of gauging the interests and the, the possibilities of who could become Pope. Um, and he was saying before he died that he thought there won't be a sort of Francis II, that the, the College of Cardinals has has moved on from from the sort of Francis train, as it were, or got off it. Um, not, <laughs> not all of them, of course, but the majority. Um, and they, they will probably swing back to somebody more, more conservative, a quieter candidate, somebody who's going to be a sort of safe pair of hands. I think that's... That's the general sense that, that people say. Those who are in touch with many cardinals will say this, but of course, you never really know until 
until the conclave. Starts. Well, you never really know, especially I think for many of us in the West, you might be an exception since you have your ear to the ground on so many issues in Rome. But Pope Francis has made so many uh, so many new cardinals from parts of the world that traditionally haven't had cardinals. And, and quite right. frankly, as I survey the landscape and look at some of the names, I'm just scratching my head going, I have no, I have zero idea who these guys are and mm. what their sort of theology is. So yeah. I have no, I have no ability in terms of the empirical data and analyzing it to, to try and figure this out. Of course. No. And I think a lot of it's based on sort of conversations with them and what they say and, you know, are they, are they sort of supportive of all of the the reforms that are currently being undertaken or not? And I think um, the other factor, of course, is that a lot of these new cardinals come from the, the global south, so often from Africa or <clears throat> the developing world, and they tend to be more conservative, at least um, theologically. And so that uh, that also plays into the, <clears throat> yeah, into the yeah. uh, possibilities of who could be elected. Yeah. Certainly does. So it, it, it's, uh, and who knows, it could be this year. I mean, the Pope is 86. It could be this year. It could be 10 years from now. Maybe he'll live yes. to be 96 yeah. or something and, yes. and and fool us all and end up being the longest reigning pontiff in human history. Right. Still right. sitting on the chair of Peter at age 105. Who the heck knows? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, yeah. this is the modern age with modern medicine. So at any yes. rate, but that is that is a nice uh, sort of segue, though, in, in discussing who the next pope might be to at least yeah. focus our attention on the current pope, uh, mm -hmm. which is which really what I wanted to discuss with you on here, because you are such an expert in Roman affairs and the papacy and what's going on at the Vatican. And uh, you sent to me today an article that you had posted online uh, that was an interview with Professor Joseph Seifert. Uh, and it's called, the, and you quote him saying the Catholic Church is in terrible danger of complete collapse. And you later amended this article to point out that he said that it, you know, in some countries, not over all over the whole yeah. world, Catholic right. Church is in terrible danger of complete com collapse in some countries unless cardinals and bishops speak up. And in the course of this article, Professor Seifert is actually very, very critical of uh, not so much, you know, the person Jorge Bergoglio, Pope Francis, but of the of the policies that he has implemented and some of the teachings yeah. that he has promulgated and uh, some of the people that he has promoted. So perhaps you can uh, uh, sort of delve into this this uh, article. It's not very long, and I encourage my readers to go to go look it up. Uh, and if I wasn't a total Luddite, I'd flash it up on the screen for people to see the link. Uh, but th the fact is that this is a tremendously important short little essay because I've long been an admirer of Professor Seifert. Uh, and I know that he's been critical of Pope Francis beginning maybe five, six, seven years ago, even. So maybe you could give us a begin by telling us who is Professor Joseph Seifert and, and what is the essence of, of what he's trying to communicate here to you in this interview? Right. Well, he's a very respected um, philosopher. He's a senior lecturer in metaphysics and epistemology at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, which is a very and he's a, he's a, a senior lecturer. He's, he's very respected figure there. Um, but also he's very well known for his pro-life positions as a philosopher. And he was a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life when that started going rather haywire and uh, under the leadership of Archbishop uh, Vincenzo Paglia, um, 
2017, he founded the John Paul II Academy for Human Life and the Family as a sort of counterweight to the Academy. He he founded it with others, of course, to be a sort of um, what the Academy he feels should be uh, and what it, you know, how it sort of left that that uh, vision that that John Paul had for the for the Academy, who set it up. In fact, it was under John Paul that the right. Academy of Life was set up. Um, so he set this academy up. It's done uh, rather well, I think. Um, a lot of the people who are part of it are those former members of the academy who he um, he was with at the time, um, and they have helped him to to set it up. Uh, and so it's it's done rather well. But he's, as I say, he's he's a, a pro life. He's very much um, uh, somebody who supports the teaching of of uh, the, the magisterium of John Paul II. Um, yeah. And that's that's crucial in in his sort of vision and his whole interpretation of the, of the magisterium and the church, especially its moral teaching. So yeah, and so I, I get this impression. Obviously, he's he's a philosopher, Catholic philosopher. He's a longtime supporter of Humanae Vitae, Veritate, Splendor, Evangelium Vitae, and so on. The, the entire range of modern magisterial teaching, especially from JP two on matters of moral theology, especially in matters of reproduction, sexuality, gender, and these kinds of things. Uh, where is this pro-life institute he started located, before I go on? Well, I don't think it's sort of, it's sort of located anywhere. I don't think there's um, any gotcha. particular base. I guess the base is, is Germany, perhaps, or, or somewhere like that. But I think um, their conferences are held in different places. There was one, I remember quite a few years ago now, there was one in Rome, um, but, okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's sort of so. Different. Yeah, so it's more like a theological society of like-minded folks who who have right. sort of come to, come together in meetings now and then, and then sort of uh, probably pool their resources and publish certain things and so on. And and, and so, okay, so that's great. That that clears something up that that I that I wanted to know. Now, okay, so what is what then is your assessment? Let let. Of, of what happened at the Pontifical Academy for Life. What is your assessment of Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia? Uh, what is, what are, what's the end game here? Is it the overturning of Humanae Vitae? Is, is Professor Seifert therefore correct that Pope Francis wants to, in a sense, modify at least Humanae Vitae in some fashion or another? Well, it's interesting in that, in his, in this article I put up that he, he talks about the fact that humana vitae really goes to the heart of this, he believes, and that it's really the descent yep. from humana vitae, which, which is what this is seems to be all about, at least to him. Um, and of course, we know that descent goes back a long way. Uh, ever since it came out, there's been that uh, descent, and there's been, um, as some would say, the majority of, of Catholics um, haven't really subscribed to it. Of course, those who, who are practicing uh, do and they see it as prophetic um but i think he sees it as as the current pontificate as a sort of re-emergence of that descent um and that was sort of in a way not stamped out totally but it was certainly um not given the upper hand during the pontificates of john paul ii and benedict the 16th and in fact it was um uh, john paul ii's uh encyclical veritatis splendor um, on the moral teachings of the church, which really um, helped to to sort of lessen that descent and and act as a counter to to all that descent. It was very much yep, that was the reason I think why it was written. And of course, John Paul II, who 
who Joseph Seifert says new new documentation has shown that he was influential in the in the forming of um, Humana Vitae. Um, you know, he throughout his pontificate, he was keen to sort of stamp down on that descent, and uh, and so he sees this now as a sort of reemergence of that. I think Archbishop Vincent Vincenzo Paglia um, certainly seems to be on the side of of trying to foster um, a certain amount of descent from Humana Vitae. Um, you see it from different different comments that he makes, um, yes. documents that they put out, which have to be then um, countered by moral theologians. That happened recently, Cardinal Gerhard Müller and uh, Professor um, uh, Stefan Kampowski wrote a piece for First Things counteracting yes. it. And there's been all kinds of, of incidents like this where... Um, well, the latest, a, the latest being, of course, he had to walk back some comments he made about the church being able to accept the youth and the new euthanasia law that Italy was right. was proposing. Right, um, and then yes, and then it moves on, of course, because I think the argument is if they can't um, they can't be faithful to humana vitae, for example, they're not going to be necessarily faithful to other um, what what Joseph Seifert calls the non negotiable teachings uh, that um, there are intrinsic evils in these these different aspects of of um life issues such as abortion and uh, and same-sex marriage and and uh and these yeah. issues in Asia so I think he just sees that as uh as you know that's that's it's the the kernel of it he, I think he sees as the human vitae one yeah I couldn't agree more and uh, it there's this uh I'm going to come back to the sort of issue of intrinsic evil in a second, because I think this is a key point uh, that, that has to be discussed with regard to what it is that the revisionist moral theologians are really going after and what it is they seek to change. But before I do that, the, to me, there, there's, an, and, and this is now more on the on the political level, and this is a level that I think you certainly understand better than I do, because you have your finger on the pulse of, of Roman ecclesial stuff, uh, as I call it. So to me, what is interesting is this crazy sort of dynamic that we see uh, right now in Rome, where uh, uh, Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia comes out with his latest, you know, well, we can change, evolve doctrine. So, you know, and, and you never put a no in front of theology, as he said mm -hmm. that a couple of weeks ago. And and then the, with, the, with the Academy for Life, they put out that book that seemed to countenance changes in the in the teaching on humanity vitae. And then now the recent statements on euthanasia. But then, you know, the very next week or the next day, they have to walk it all back. And the Vatican issues a press release then that says, of course, Archbishop Pallia embraces all of the church's teachings and so on. Even his recent thing on euthanasia, he begins by saying, nobody supports humani vitae more than I do. And then mm -hmm. he proceeds to show that he in fact does not. So mm -hmm. it, it, there, there just seem to be all of these internal contradictions. Is there, in other words, is there a battle going on in the Vatican behind the scenes that an average slob like me doesn't really understand or get? Where, what is the, what is Pope Francis hoping to gain from this kind of incoherence and this kind of public statement followed by walking it back? What, what's what's going on here? Well, I think a lot of it is to do with the obviously the people he's chosen to be around him, um, like Archbishop Pallia, but many others who who 
uh, the ones who sort of put him there. I mean, they were the ones who who sort of maneuvered him into position uh, at the last conclave. And so they're very keen that this sort of agenda goes forward. It's very much the the Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini uh, vision of the church, which is, you know, very much a sort of modernistic, uh, a modernism of the church. You know, it's very much making it into a... Uh, a church where the, that he said wanted to be sort of more closer to, to the world and to be updated. He said it was 200 years behind the times. And so it's all trying to make the church fit into the world and the way the world sees things, especially on moral issues. Um, and yeah. this is all part of it. And I think, yeah. And I think Francis is, is their man. He's their man. He's the person they wanted to, to push all this through and that's what he's doing and um and i you know it's it's been quite visible for many years now and i think the fact that i think what makes people like professor joseph seifert um, frustrated and angry about is that uh, few cardinals and bishops are saying anything about it even though they know that this is not consistent it's not philosophically acceptable um the law of con non-contradiction is 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 broken all the time and so um he sees that as just unacceptable and that it's it's amazing to him that bishops and cardinals aren't speaking up. And what really set him off about this letter was that uh, one cardinal said that, you you know, it was the, an evil thing to criticize the Pope. And he was a, he was a friend of his and he thought he, this is this this isn't acceptable. So he wrote a, a letter to him, which um, which he kindly responded to, but he didn't take any action. And so he then wrote um, the letter again but open an open letter and addressed it to all the cardinals of the college of cardinals asking them to stand up and speak up against um this sort of revolution he doesn't call it a revolution but many people have yeah i certainly see it as a revolution and it's something that i've been writing about for three years now about uh, why is it that we don't see more spine uh more you know stiff resistance from cardinals and bishops uh, right. to, to some of the moves of Pope Francis. Once in a while, you'll see, well, I'd say, you see many priests that are willing to do that. And then quite often they get slapped down by their bishop, reprimanded by their bishop, labeled as whatever. Um, and so there, there is that out there, that this, this silence from the cardinals and bishops. I do not think that it's because they full that they all agree with Pope Francis and his agenda. I just think it's part of a general reticence for you know episcopal leadership you know it's in poor yeah. form it's it's well, not think, in you know to criticize the pope yeah i think a lot of it too is that they think oh well you know we'll just stick this out i mean i've heard this many times from yeah from different uh prelates and officials you know we just need to stick it out the pope this pope you know pope no pope lasts forever and um we'll get a new one and this will all be you know pass under the bridge but um water under the bridge but it will you know, this is what they, this is the way they kind of reason about it and, and hope that it'll just pass. Um, but I've heard that, I think the first time I heard that was about six or seven years ago. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still good. That's yeah. why I made the comment I did about you never know. He's 86, but maybe he'll live to be, you know. Right. And by, exactly. by the way, I'm not to all my people who send me hate mail, I am not wishing. Pope Francis to no. to pass on to his great reward. I'm not wishing that at all. I would not wish that on anybody. I'm merely making the empirical observation that it is possible 
for this pope to live much, much longer. So it's it's I know, in other words, Ed, what you're saying, the attitude is out there among so many conservative Catholics, bishops included, which is we don't really need to make much of a stink about this papacy, because after all, he's 86 and he's not going to be around much longer. So my point is, hey, don't be so certain of that. You know, he. The, the, in other words, we need to stand up and speak out. You know, you're a journalist and you need to be a little more even keel. I, I suffer from no such constraints. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite, quite open about the fact that I think this pope has been has been an overall a, a, a bad thing for the church. Uh, and so I think there does need to be some respectful moderated resistance to this, not the kind of Looney Tunes stuff. I, I, I don't think Pope Francis is a heretic, but I think that there are trends in this papacy that are dangerous. And that's why I was very interested in what Professor Seifert had to say uh, about this. So what mm. specifically, you know, Professor Seifert says this pope has instituted uh, a dynamic that's going to change doctrine. Now we know that he has contraception in view, humani vitae in view. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there? I mean, would he also include in this perhaps changes made to the Eucharistic discipline for the divorced and remarried? Yes. Well, he he lists them in this letter, which I link to in the piece. Um, I don't put it right underneath, but it's it's quite a long letter. Um, but in in that letter that he wrote to the cardinals, he lists. Uh, various aspects which he sees this pontificate as as going off the rails about. He says uh, the first one, I think the one that really um, really uh, is a problem to him is when Francis made the assertion that God positively wills a diversity of religions. And that was made in the Abu Dhabi declaration in 2019. And um, I think he sees that as just, um, well, it's a lot of, People did too. Bishop Athanasius Schneider um, wrote a letter to him about this, to the Pope about it. I think there was a lot of concern because that that does smack of heresy. I mean, if you're saying that uh, yes. that God wills the diversity of religions, then um, that's not that's not acceptable. I think I think the argument is that um, I think it's something about the God's passive um, passive will allows it but he doesn't will it deliberately it's not positively wills which is what the document says so there was that and then um he talks about his support for um same-sex unions that's another big issue um the pope's denial of the existence of acts that are always and everywhere evil such as adultery by because of his um his document amoris laetitia which which allowed communion in some cases to divorced and remarried Catholics that he believes um, as did the Dubia Cardinals that's why they wrote the Dubia they wanted to know if the Pope really believed um, that such acts are always and everywhere evil Um, and then um, it's his he talks about his false teaching on the death penalty Um, he believes that um, the Pope's changed the catechism to say that the death penalty is inadmissible, that is a break with the church's perennial teachings. Um, the Pope's claim that hell is empty. I don't think he ever said that on the record. I think that was an interview with yes. um, Eugenio Scalfari, which of course was very controversial because Scalfari never took notes and um, never recorded the which, interview. Which raises the, the prudential question of why would a Pope 
grant an interview to an octogenarian atheist journalist who doesn't take notes. Right. Uh, Exactly. Are you not begging for misunderstanding? Uh, yeah, such a context. But I want to go back. OK, first yeah. off, there's so much in there in what you just said. Uh, and yeah. I don't mean to interrupt if you weren't finished, but I'm glad you mentioned that you did link to the fuller letter from Professor Seifert. You sent me this article like a couple hours ago, and I just did not have time to go and read the longer letter. So uh, I would encourage my viewers if they're if they access this article, uh, just type in Edward Penton, Joseph Seifert, Google it, you'll find it. Uh, and so I, I haven't a chance, but I'm so I'm glad that you did link the longer the longer uh, letter because then we'll fill in some of these blanks. So I'm not going to I'm not going to belabor that point. But I want to point to the Abu Dhabi statement then, because uh, I did say, hey, I don't think the pope is a heretic, but maybe I'm about to just have my mind changed. I don't know. Uh, right here on the air. Uh, and I know I have a lot of traditionalist friends who are always after me saying, why can't you see that this pope is a heretic? Because I don't like calling the pope a heretic. That's why it's not in my genetic nature to sit around musing about whether or not the pope is a heretic. Nevertheless, if he is, he is now. OK, so let's get to the Abu Dhabi statement, because I think that on the face of it, of course, I think that not only flirts with heresy, I think it is heresy to say that that Christianity is simply one religion among many, that God wills the diversity of religions. Uh, first off, that also includes uh, a rather modern, politically liberal notion of what religion is, this reified thing, uh, which is a whole nother debate for a whole nother day that post-liberal scholars, of course, would have a great deal of, of issue with. But nevertheless, and, and I've talked about it on here, nevertheless, is it not true that the Vatican walked that statement back or airbrushed it up after the fact to make it to, to clarify it, as you just said, that what the Pope meant was God's indirect will is to permit these religions? I'm not aware of that, Larry. I, they, they may have done, but I don't think so, because I know that uh, Bishop Schneider, um, when he saw the Pope, I think he he asked him, you know, will you change it? And I think the Pope said that he would, but I don't know if it has been changed. So, um, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, I'm going to have to look into this then, because it was my understanding that they had sort of airbrushed it and changed it to take note of the criticisms. And if they haven't done that, and I'm going to, I will follow up on this. So my viewers will know I'm, I'm, I'm on the case guys. I'm going to follow up on this uh, because this is an extremely important point. You know, it's, 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 I mean, it cuts right to the heart of the Christian evangel you know, to say that God wills all the other religions as equally as he does uh, Christianity. I assume that was kind of implied in the Abu Dhabi statement, not that God wills for a diversity of religion, but I think the implication is that they're therefore all on a kind of equal footing with one another. I mean, is, is that what you take yeah. to be the gist of it? Well, I think, yeah, I think that the, the key pro- problem was that it's, it seemed to say that God positively wills them. And um, yeah. as I said, there's a passive will and an active will. And I don't think um, the, I think him saying that he positively wills is a, is a problem. I think a lot of theologians thought that. Um, but I think the problem also here, Larry, for me, is that no, go ahead. When, the Pope, when the Pope does make these statements, and if they are corrected, fine, but there's never much um, right. publicity, it's not announced. So the, the errors get carried along and they're not ever really corrected. And that seems to happen a lot. Um, and it's it's quite remarkable how, you know, the claim that hell is empty, for example. I don't know if that was ever properly corrected by by the 
press office. So it sort of still stands. You see, it still stands right. as a as a stand. And I'm troubled by that, even though you know I. Really I'm special. I'm a specialist in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. That's what I, I did my doctorate on, and I, I have, I adhere to some version of Balthasar's view that we can at least hope for the salvation of all. But not even the great Balthasar would have said, "Hey, hell's empty." We can know that. In fact, he argues decidedly against the idea that we can know for certain uh, that hell is empty or that hell is populated one way or the other or even fulsomely populated. So yeah, that that's a troublesome comment to come from the Pope. And I remember when he said it, and of course it was the, in the, in the interview. So it's not de fide definita dogmatic teaching or anything, uh, yeah. but still it's, it's deeply troubling. Of course, the, 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 the lack of clarification, as you point out, is, is sort of a central motif of this papacy going all the way back to the early days of this papacy with that famous, who am I to judge? Uh, right phrase that never was later you know clarified by the vatican hey we were just talking about repentant sinners and the need to be merciful towards repentance no no that's it, it was immediately taken with the press and run with gay is okay because the pope right. says we're not to judge any of this right. and that then of course he promoted james martin he promotes prelates yeah. like cardinal mcelroy who have called for a change in church teaching on homosexuality. He, he has made Cardinal Hollerich, the relator general of the Synod. He has publicly stated that the church is wrong on homosexuality. He has sent private letters to Sister Gramic of New Ways Ministry here in the United States, two mm -hmm. private letters saying that he supports her ministry. So I guess one can reach the conclusion, right, that the Pope is dissenting or at least yeah. let's actively promoting theological dissent on the issue of homosexuality. Yes. And let's not forget that. I think, I think was it father Martin sent a dubia to the Pope and he answered it, I think the next day. Uh, so, you know, it's, yeah. um, I think the Pope, I can't remember the exact details, but it was something that needed clarification as far well, as the, the Pope had said something to the effect that homosexuality remains a sin. And it, right. in response to a question. And of course, Father Martin immediately wanted to know if the Pope was saying that the orientation itself is a sin or was sexual activity the sin that he was referring to. And of course, right. the Pope immediately rushed in and said yeah. the sexual activity is the sin, not the orientation. And then he added, which is something Father Martin didn't even ask for by way of clarification. The Pope then added, and of course, there are then all kinds of mitigating factors as to just how serious any of these sins are. Right. Right. You know, so it, it does raise, go ahead. No, it seems quite clear though, doesn't it? Where his, his sympathies lie and, and which gender ideology he seems to be sympathetic to. I don't, I don't think there's any sort of doubt about that now that um and those as i say those are the people around him who are pushing this um and you know that's why he's there i think uh for, for large part of the reason for those who got him there uh, want their agenda pushed through and that's that's a major part of it i would say yep you know on, the, on let's stick for a second because i want to come back to the issue of intrinsic evils let's stick for a second on the issue of homosexuality because of <clears> course <throat> It's, it's a burning issue that everybody wants to know about these days. Uh, I've written in the register, for which we both write, uh, in an article where I pointed out that there is a profound incongruity often 
between what Pope Francis says on the, you know, publicly on the issue of homosexuality and what he does. Of course, he has said that he opposes ideological colonization, that he opposes transgender ideology. He has said that he opposes anything that ideologizes all of this and turns it into a, a sort of lobby, as he called a movement. But then he turns around, despite all of those words, and then promotes people to high office in the church who completely disagree with those words. Mm-hmm. And so there is this there is this fundamental incoherence in this papacy, which I think also is driving Professor Seifert crazy. Um, number one, do you share that assessment that there is an incongruence between his words and his deeds? And if you do share that belief, what does this incongruence mean? Does it mean that the Pope is being deceptive in his words? Um, <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think a lot of it's to do with um, his Peronist background in the sense that he, the Peronism is about, as far as I understand it, a lot about, um, uh, it's very pragmatic. So <clears throat> if he's speaking to somebody who is, um, of a certain opinion, he will tend to say things which he knows that that person will support. And then if he's speaking to somebody else who has a very opposite opinion, um, he will also go along with that person and whatever they support. So it sounds like he's sort of friends with everybody. Um, but as, as people have often said, it, you have to look at the actions that the Pope does. Yes. And his actions obviously speak louder than his words. And his actions tend to be always on the more heterodox side um, and very much sort of undermining uh, the magisterium. Uh, I mean, there's so many different examples, but uh, but I think yeah. that's that's the essence of it. And I think, again, I think it's because the ones that he really listens to are the ones who who put him there, the ones who who are yeah. very yeah. much of that that ilk, I would say. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I agree completely with 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 uh, that assessment. I'm, I'm not certain, though. I'm not I'm always a little bit dubious about the Peronist argument. I, mean, I hear people make this Peronist argument all the time uh, and, you know, that you 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 position yourself, you know, you, you, you talk to both extremes or all sides and you tell them what you what they want to hear. And this creates then a sort of destabilization and confusion. And then you position yourself as kind of the, the personality that has the charism that can hold the whole thing together, uh, that I alone can transcend all of these all of these things, which is why I'm able to speak to all of you with a certain sympathy, even as I transcend it. Um, th- th- I think there's a lot of perhaps potential truth in that in that Peronist uh, that Peronist argument. Um, there's there's another point of view that I lean towards, though, too, is that the Pope is simply a sentimentalist uh, and and perhaps doesn't think these things things through quite as deeply as maybe we, we think that he does. And he is simply kind of speaking to people what he thinks they want to hear, because it's it's a feel good thing to do. I don't know that that's another possibility that that mm-hmm. I often you know toss out there. I'm not certain if it's true or not. Perhaps the Peronist one is true. Uh, but nevertheless, what it boils down to is is a deep, a deep incoherence at the very heart of this papacy, which is a shame because it seems to me that the function of the Petrine ministry is to unify by clarifying, not to disunite by muddying the waters, which is exactly what he 
seems to be up to is disuniting by muddying the waters. Yes. Well, I think it's all part of a sort of strategy, if you like. I mean, you know, I agree with you. There is a certain sentimental element to that, but I think there's also a strategy behind it too. And okay. I think that is sort of to, to throw up um, conf conflicting signals and confusion. And that way you get through um, an agenda and a, and a, and a vision and a, a direction that he wants to go. Um, I think that's oh. sort of, I'd, I'd say that's certainly part of it. He's, he's a very politically minded. He's very, um, he, he knows how to handle things politically. He's, he's very astute in that regard. Um, and okay. I don't think, I think he's, yeah, I think he's well aware of what he's doing. Yeah. Well, you don't have to agree with what I'm about to say next, because one of the reasons why I, I shy away from those kinds of arguments is because it leads me to the conclusion that the Pope is deceptive, that he's not being entirely truthful, that he's mendacious. Uh, and, and that's a sin, right? That's a mm -hmm. sinful intellectual uh, activity for him to be engaging in and, and shame on him for doing so. Uh, but that's why I sort of avoid strategizing about this saying, okay, this is what he he has to say the orthodox stuff to placate this wing of the church all the while he's working over here to undermine the whole edifice well that means what he's saying to these guys over here by way of placation is a lie that it's not true and and you know that too is 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 something that should cause us pause with with regard to this papacy now i don't expect you to jump on and agree with that that assessment but uh I, I want to come back then to to the issue of the the divorce and remarried in Amoris Laetitia. Uh, I know Professor Seifert brings this up as well. And and the fact that the Pope has never answered the four dubia cardinals, uh, even though he's quick to answer a James Martin, you know, just as he has time to meet with uh, drag queens at St. Peter's and he has time to meet with NBA stars from the United States, but he didn't have time to meet with Cardinal Zen when Cardinal right. Zen was, was, was in Rome. Um, mm. It seems as if, right, this is another one of his actions where he, he has no issue with simply, you know, as, as the kids would say, dissing the, the, the conservative element of the church and just send them packing. Right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think, quite, quite openly the case. I think he, he sees um, moderates as really those sort of, on the more sort of heterodox wing and yet and conservatives are sort of on the extreme side that that seems to be what he says i mean he said it really he said it privately um and so i think that is the way he sees things and uh yeah i i um and i, I it's interesting how um he, i think from the get-go he was he was like this and he was there's something about the sort of conservative certainly american as well I think, which kind of triggers him a little bit. And uh, I think he yes. just doesn't, he just I'm, doesn't like it. Whatever background, whatever has been in his past, which does this, it <laughs> seems to upset him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we're ignoring the fact, I mean, he may be a Peronist, but never admit that he's, you know, a South American. And so I've detected right. what I think right. is a generalized dislike for the Anglophone world in general, but for the United States in, in particular, you know, yes. uh, and I think that Traditiones Custodes, for example, is in great measure a response to the fact that 
the outside of France, the largest devotees of the traditional Latin mass were some rather very conservative English speaking types in the UK and and in the United States. And I yeah. I mean, he allows all kinds of craziness to go on with regard to the mass of Paul. This. He just recently said, well, the reason why I put down the, the Latin mass is because it was being ideologized as if as if the mass of Paul VI hasn't been ideologized for 60 years by, right. by all kinds of far left factions in the church. As I said in my recent register article, every rainbow colored mass, every pride mass in the church is already a hyper ideologized liturgy of some kind. But Pope Francis seems to have zero issue with rainbow liturgies and big issue with English speakers doing the Latin liturgy. I mean, do do you agree with that assessment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of it's to do with the fact that, um, yes, there's that sort of anti-Americanism, if you like, or uh, anti-Anglo position that he has. And anti-conservative, but also I think it's he. I think he realizes, and I think the people around him also realize that the tr- traditional mass is a real obstacle to his agenda and his, to the to the revolution. And I think um, that's yeah. why there's a sort of vehemence to try to stamp it out because they see that really as the, the main hindrance to to going forward with this with this agenda. Well, I say that's weird. I mean, I say that exact thing in my last issue in the Register. Uh, well, oh, wait a minute. No, that's my next article coming out in the register uh, that uh, when I'm dealing where I'm dealing with liturgy. But but anyway, uh, I'm mixing up all my various <laughs> register articles. Uh, but the, the, the fact is, yes, he he has said that, you know, that the Latin mass people are contrary to Vatican, too. And that that's why he's doing so. A lot of this, it seems to me, is is an attempt at he, not so much that he is all that concerned with liturgy as such. It's all about controlling the narrative of Vatican II. It's it's all about, and and, and I've written, on, I don't remember where I've written on this, Catholic World Report or the Register. Uh, it's all about furthering this narrative of what I call the council interrupted. That we had the council, a certain dynamic was set in place where the progressives begin to take charge of things. Paul VI seemed very amenable to that, despite Humanae Vitae. Then all of a sudden, it stops, and we get these two reactionary dullards, Wojtyla and Ratzinger, who, even though they were at the council, didn't understand it and immediately hated it and immediately tried to roll back all of its, all of its reforms. But now, finally, we have the dear leader. <laughs> finally we have the great revolution taken up yet again so a great deal of what we're seeing is simply a recrudescence of 1970s style progressive theology and it, and and so putting down the latin mass is a constitutive element in the retrieval of this of this narrative right and it's interesting how he uses this sort of uh i don't know the ad hominems or how, whatever you'd call them uh criticisms of the traditional mass, which really apply to to the agenda that he's pursuing. I mean, saying that it's sort of backward. Um, backward. Backward than going back to the 1970s. I mean, that's that's really what's what they're doing. Uh, I think that's the argument that they're doing. Whereas, of course, the traditional mass is getting more support from young people, as we saw this weekend in Chartres in France, the huge numbers of pilgrims going on the traditional pilgrim a traditional pilgrimage there, young young pilgrims, sixteen thousand. Um, 
and so the future is is there it's, it's not with uh with the the sort of stuck in the 70s sort of vision of of the council or at least their interpretation of the council so so yeah i think it's um it's definitely uh a scene i think it's definitely a sort of attempt to stamp it out because it is it is this great obstacle to their to their sort of pro progressive vision yeah and, and to not stamp it out is to admit that there isn't one single way their way of interpreting the second vatican council and and the right. reforms that it called for and in particular, perhaps even the liturgical reform, especially. I mean, one would be hard pressed to read Sacra Sanctum Concilium and then to look at the Mass of Paul VI and say, "Yeah, that's what the Council wanted." Right. Uh, you right. know, so, so you have to kind of create this narrative of that the Council, you know, its spirit. What what they mean when they say the spirit of Vatican II is that you know the 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 rupturists believe that what was important about the Council was simply the event that it created. The event itself creates a historical dynamic that is the Holy Spirit at work. Forget what the council actually says. That doesn't matter. What matters is the trajectory as an event that the council instituted. Um, and, and, and so oftentimes conservatives, in arguing against the progressive narrative, think that oh, well, all I have to do is quote the council to prove how wrong they are in their narrative. And, and it's utterly beside the point. They don't give a darn about what the council actually says. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but go you ahead. could argue, I don't know if you want to get into the whole council argument, but the I think Cardinal Casper admitted that it was written with, in a sort of ambiguous way so that it could be sort of misinterpreted and interpreted in a way which the liberals would want. And you see that also in the synods that, that we see today, and that, that they're sort of ambiguously written like Amoris Laetitia. And so they're they're interpreted in the way that um, you know, those who were pushing this agenda uh, have intended from the beginning. And um, I think that's, it's a sort of say, the same model being repeated uh, throughout. And uh, that's why I think some people say, well, these, this pontificate really is the, the natural, um, the natural sort of conclusion of the council in the sense that it's, it's, um, it's sort of bringing forward the sort of things that, uh, those who who deliberately made the council documents ambiguous wanted from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with 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 what Cardinal Casper said, and I'm familiar with uh, with that argument. I'm not entirely certain I agree with it, though. Mm -hmm. uh, I I'm not completely on board. The Vatican II was uh, hopelessly ambiguous in key points. Train. I'm not I'm not entirely on that train, uh, yeah. and, and I I think that especially in light of the magisterially authoritative pontificates of John Paul and Benedict uh, that, that gave us a magisterial orientation to how to properly interpret those conciliar documents. Um, I, I think that further adds further weight to the idea that the council may not have been as ambiguous as some of its critics claim on both the right. And of course the traditionalists claim the same thing. Yes. The council is deadly ambiguous and that's what has led directly to Pope Francis. And of course, the rupturists agree with that completely. I'm more in the communio school of thought uh, that sees discontinuities and continuities. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation for a different day. Ed, and we're sort of uh, running low on time here. Um, but uh, I want I want to come back then to um, to this this letter of Professor Seifert and the things that he has listed that he thinks 
because I think this is this is the key thing we want to talk about. Forget the council and whether it was good or whether it was bad, but is Pope Francis promoting people and he himself the views that are heretical? Uh, so I want to come back to the death penalty question uh, and and his claim that the death penalty is now completely inadmissible. I say in my latest book, you know, that this is strange given the fact that at one time the church herself actually executed people. And now we have a scenario where the church is saying, no, no, you, you, that's completely inadmissible. What, what, what's interesting, is, of course, is he, he avoids the language of intrinsic evil. He doesn't say the death penalty is intrinsically evil and therefore always everywhere. No, uh, immoral. He simply yeah. says in, in a phrase that I don't think has much ecclesiastical pedigree, he calls it inadmissible. Uh, is is that a significant thing that he doesn't say intrinsic evil? It says inadmissible instead. Is that simply a slippery way of saying that it's intrinsically evil? Well, this is what um, you know, respected philosophers like Edward Fazer says, I believe, that because he didn't go that far. But he, I mean, he, Edward Fazer, I think, still believes that it was a wrong. Uh, yes, he does. I read his latest piece. Yeah. Yes. But I, I think the fact that he didn't, because I, mean, I think he believes that it's almost, he might as well have said uh, intrinsically evil. But um, but I, uh, yeah, I think that he deliberately stepped away from saying that precisely because that would have been a step too far. And um, but uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting how, I mean, another part of this pontificate, just just say briefly that um, the Pope, you know, he's he's very. Authoritarian in that sense. I mean, he will, although he wants sort of synodality and everything. When it, when he wants to do something and change something, he'll just do it unilaterally, like like this with the with the catechism, which, uh, which oh, is quite Ed. compelling, really. Yeah. And and I mean, we we could talk. I could talk to you for hours. We could have another show on synodality and yes. another show on the on the German synod the synod synodo vague. Right, um, right. Because you know, we, we you know we're sort of running out of time, but at, to, a discussion then of synodality is not outside of boundaries here in terms of going too far off the tracks of a discussion of Pope Francis, because he's initiated th this thing. Now, Vatican II did speak of collegiality, and it did even speak of you know of, of the creation of perhaps of national episcopal conferences and so on. But this synodality thing is is something different, and and quite frankly. Given the actions of this papacy, which in many ways are, as you pointed, autocratic, in many ways anti-synodal. How anti-synodal is Traditionis Custodes? Uh, how right. anti-synodal is it so the Vatican now claims the right to micromanage what you can and cannot put into a parish bulletin about yeah. the, the Latin mass times in your parish? Mm -hmm. is, how is that synodal? Uh, the removal of the bishop in Puerto Rico, I can't remember his name, with, without any canonical sort of procedure or anything for for yeah. unknown reasons. And of course, one could go on and on and on. So it leads one to the conclusion that the synodal process is a conclusion in search of uh, cover, a conclusion in search of arguments. Uh, the, the faux democratic processes are curated from above, manipulated from above. The deck is stacked from above in order to get the prearranged results. This is clearly what the Germans have done. Okay, mm -hmm. they, they disempowered all the conservative voices and empowered all the liberal ones. And is right. this not what's happening in the synodal way in, in general? 
Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think you've nailed it. I think it is a. It is a sort of cover for pushing through an agenda. I mean, I've I've spoken about this. I've written about how the synods are really uh, sort of vehicles for heterodoxy. Um, yeah, your your book on the synod and the family was fantastic because it's. Yeah, started, well, it, go ahead. No, I just think it's from the beginning and from those synods we could see it, um, and you just seen it confirmed throughout each synod that we've had. And this sort of idea of a permanent synod, uh, which is Cardinal Martini's dream that he had um, of having a sort of permanent synod, really is a sort of ersatz sort of council. It's a sort of third Vatican council, which they're, they're sort of putting through um, as a synod, because if it's constantly uh, in play and the church's teaching is also always sort of up for grabs and up for development, um, then it's like a sort of Vatican Council that's sort of never ending, and I think yeah, that's yeah, really a Vatican Council without the nettlesome problem of having to deal with actual bishops. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's now no, it's not called the Synod of Bishops anymore. By the way, it's called the Synod, which um, they, it's sort of rather uh, discreetly being changed that it's not actually well, called. Well, this yeah, the, this raises the, but it's because now the Pope has said that lay people are going to be in the Synod on Synods. And that they are going to have voting rights, and mm -hmm. and so it's it. How can you then possibly call it the Senate of Bishops when it is not really just exclusively with bishops anymore? And I know right. Father Ger Gerald Murray has just recently written an article where he says, of course, this goes contrary to canon law as to what a Senate of Bishops should be, yeah. so on and so forth. But my response to that would be, even if that is true. The Pope can do whatever the heck the Pope wants. The Pope can, right? Am I wrong about? I mean, the Pope can go against any canon he just darn well feels like going against. Yeah, so if the Pope wakes up in the morning and says, "I want lay people voting at the Synod of Bishops," and so the Synod of Bishops is now not really a Synod of Bishops anymore, it doesn't matter what canon he's violating, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. But this is this has been a problem with his pontificate that he's. I think a lot of people have been concerned about the fact that he's, you know just it's become sort of lawless and there's the fact that he sort of sort of uh, tramples over canon law and just does whatever he yeah. wants when it suits him but then invokes canon law when uh, when it suits him too which um, you know when it comes to the traditional wing for example was that not one of the posthumous uh, things that came out that apparently cardinal allegedly cardinal pell had said about this papacy yes. that it that it, that it was lawless Exactly. That was one of his big concerns, because I, I remember talking to him about it soon, shortly before he died, and he was very concerned about the, the lawlessness. He want, he was hoping for a, a successor who would bring uh, the law back into the Vatican and back into the to the running of the church. He, he saw it as a real problem. Yeah. Well, it was a great privilege, obviously, for you to know Cardinal Pell so well and to have the opportunity to converse with him, especially since he passed. Uh, yeah. To be honest with you, I was never a huge Cardinal Pell fan way back in the day when he first sort of hit hit the scene. Uh, no big reason why. I just he just didn't you know move me that much. But I gained enormous respect for him in the way he conducted and carried himself in light of the absolutely atrocious way in which the Australian judicial system treated him. Yeah, yeah. And he came back a different man, actually. I mean, when he came back to Rome. He was um, very humbled, I think, by it, and and uh, yeah, he was. It certainly had a, a, a 
mysteriously positive effect of course as these things do as suffering does yeah. but it, yeah he, he he was different yeah in many ways uh as as george weigel once said to me in some ways what we the church has lost among the college of cardinals we've it's lost its quarterback uh, it true. lost its quarterback because cardinal pell was really kind of coming into his own really in many ways as a mover and a mm-hmm. shaker behind the scenes as an yes. influential sort of person with, with many, many fellow Cardinals who respected him and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, we, we've been uh, going at this for almost an hour. Are there any issues with the, with the Francis pontificate that we haven't covered the, that you might want to bring up here before we, before we sort of, I have no hard and fast time where I have to cut this off, but I know your time is limited. And so I don't want to presume yeah. upon your time. No. But go ahead. No, just Larry, I think, um, I think it's quite interesting to reflect on what where this is all leading and what perhaps the Lord yes. is going to what he what he wants what his his plan is for all of this. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's interesting that you know we've <clears throat> excuse me we've seen a great sort of uh, in a way you could argue it's a sort of purification of all the sort of modernism and and dissenting thinking and, and heresies that have sort of cropped up over the last yeah. decades and that maybe this is just a means of of sort of purifying the church and and getting rid of all of that so that uh it's the church is gets back to being truly apostolic and and faithful to the magisterium and that's um that could well be where we're heading and the, which means yes. that there could be more more problems more suffering to come um but at the end of the day that's that's the good that could come from it, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, to go back to end, in a sense, where we started with the Professor Seifert article, and he says we're going to witness in certain countries, you know, a complete collapse uh, of the church. I have no yeah. doubt that he has in mind Europe, North America in particular. Um, and and I think I, the, all the signs are there for anybody who has a lick of sense to see. Yeah. As especially as we hemorrhage young people out of the church and, and, and marriages are way down, baptisms are way down and so on. You get the, the metrics are all bad. The demographics are bad. Uh, and you just get this palpable sense if you have any kind of gut instinct at all, that things are not only trending down, they're kind of going off the cliff as we speak. And my, my issue with that, therefore, to go back to Professor Seifert and to uh, then Joseph Ratzinger's statement in like the late 60s about the church going to shrink and and become a smaller, holier church. My point is that this is then precisely what is wrong about the pastoral response of Pope Francis and, say, the Germans, where essentially you're saying, yeah, we're, we're losing Catholics in Western culture. Therefore, the answer to that is to double down on modern political liberalism, on modern cultural liberalism, and to accommodate the church like a chameleon to this culture, in my view, which doesn't recognize the toxic nature of this culture to the faith, or that where this model has been tried among the Protestants, it has utterly failed. But you could argue, though, Larry, that that's, that is a sort of, that that sort of dynamic has to see itself through in order to show, yes. um, some ways, say, the bankruptcy of, of the current leadership and that in order to show everyone how just bank bankrupt it is it's got to go the full the full length and and you've got to see how it's just totally 
Um, oh yes, I I agree with you completely. I was not disagreeing with your assessment at all. Uh, like, no, that, no, 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 yeah, <laughs> that, that I was just sort of dotting an I and crossing no, a T with regard to the beginning of the article. That that yeah, I agree with you completely. We're going to see much harsher times ahead and leaner times ahead, and we're going to see a great diminishment of the church. And we just need to acknowledge that this is what's going to happen. And it's not until we sort of hit rock bottom. And the only people that are left are those who have apostolic zeal and true Catholic faith uh, that we can slowly brick by brick by brick and hopefully build it up. And hopefully by then the broader culture as well will have come to see the bankruptcy of modern nihilistic secularism uh, and then be more open and ready for a uh, re-evangelization of those cultures. Indeed. I think that could well be it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I can't thank you enough, Ed, for coming on here. This is actually our thank first you. time meeting face to face. I'm going to be in yeah. Rome. I'm, my wife and I are going to be in Rome next week. I, uh, I think the last time in, I was in Rome, we, we just, it was Pope Benedict's funeral. We didn't get a chance to meet up and we probably won't next week either. But uh, so right. it's great meeting you face to face. Uh, finally, I've been a great me. admirer of your work. I read your stuff all the time. And when you agreed to come on my show, it's like, hey, wow, that's fantastic. I get to talk to Ed. And <laughs> I know I, <laughs> you know, and I know my viewers and listeners feel the same. So thank you so much, Edward Penton, thank you, uh, ju- Catholic journalist and intellectual extraordinaire, in my view. Thank you for coming on. It's, it's been an absolute joy. And thank you, everybody, for le- listening. And until next time.